Two uh, Sunday nights ago, uh, Tom, uh, Mark Raggett and James and I, we went out to see the film The Big Short. Anyone seen The Big Short? Good film, pretty good film. I really do enjoy the sub-genre of Wall Street films, you know, guys in uh, suits and, you know, the financial stresses, billions of dollars about to be risked and uh, people sweating and workplace politics. The weird thing is, though, I'm no expert on money. Like, I'm hopeless. I've no idea what they're talking about. You know, when you watch the news and they get to that bit and they talk about, you know, the effects of the bond yield retardation or the scandal involving forward settling ETFs. I've got no idea. It's like they're talking Russian or something. But the film is full of that jargon and they go to great extents to entertainingly explain all of that. Um, and the, it's basically about this hedge fund manager, uh, play, uh, Michael Burry, played by Christian Bale. And he's like a maths genius. And he works out a way to um, make money by creating a credit default swap market. In other words, he buys insurance from the banks, which is a kind of a bet against the housing market. And uh, the banks think he's crazy, so they go for this insurance and they go for this deal. And there's another trader and a hedge fund manager, played by Ryan Gosling and, and Steve Carell, who hear about this scheme. And they discover that, in actual fact, this potential housing market bubble crash which is going to happen is being pushed along by what's called collateralized debt obligations or CDOs which are groups of bad loans that are bundled together and given a false AAA rating. Never thought I'd be talking like this in church, did you? <laughs> this was being done by the rating agencies who had like a conflict of interest. Um, so once these guys worked it out, they too bought these credit default swaps and uh, from the banks and, and hedged millions of dollars on the crash happening. Now, while these hedge fund managers and these traders weren't acting illegally, they were taking advantage of a system that was inherently broken. It was inherently dishonest in a way. The, the financial institutions were dishonest. The banks were giving huge loans to people who couldn't afford it, who they know, knew could not pay it back. Even the government was turning a blind eye to a very bad situation and thereby participating in this dishonest system. And in the end, these brilliant um, hedge fund managers, and they made a lot of cash. These people that worked it out, a few of them made a huge loss too. The credit default swaps paid off. But millions of other Americans lost their houses, their jobs, lots of money. It seems it's hard for economics and financial systems to not be like this, isn't it? It seems like there is something in it about it and by, by the way the world works which lends itself to injustice. And this is why I think Jesus calls it in this parable worldly wealth. In other translations, dishonest wealth, Jesus calls it. Luke 16 records one of Jesus' most startling parables. It's startling because of what he says. Listen to this. The conclusion of the parable in verse 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This does not sound like Jesus. It sounds like Gordon Gecko from the Wall Street film. What does it mean? This is a great example of how you need to get inside Jesus' head, this parable, and find the key to unlock it. 
And once you, once you get that key, it actually makes a lot of sense. So let's do that. A bit of background to the passage. It's, it seems to be the disciples that Jesus is talking to, although the Pharisees are standing around the back and they appear at the end in verse 14 grumbling. But the teaching is addressed to his followers. And it's often our temptation when we read a parable to allegorise it. We look for which character is God or Jesus, which character is the baddie, which character is me. You know, that's what we try and do. But we shouldn't do that in this parable. Not all parables are like that. Rather, this is an example, a story that Jesus uses from everyday life. The people listening would have understood what he's talking about, the context, the concept of a a rich man and a manager and wealth. He's talking about how the world works, to make a point. So there are limits to the analogies that we make with this parable. As we go through and work it out, we have to draw a line around what Jesus is actually saying and what he's not saying. These are boundaries that Jesus sets himself by what he says in the parable and also in other teachings in Luke's gospel. So that's the background. Let's look at the parable. Who are these characters? In verse 1 to 3, we get introduced to two main characters. The first, the first main character is a rich man who uh, has various business interests and he has a lot of money. And we're used to being suspicious of rich men in the Gospel of Luke. Any time a rich man is talked about, especially by Jesus, it's in negative terms. And as Australians, that's a good thing because we, we're always a bit suspicious of rich people. We like to knock rich people. So apparently Clive Palmer's nickel refinery has gone into administration. Yeah. Doesn't that make you feel good inside? Apart from all the workers that have lost their jobs. Australians love to knock the rich man. And so does Jesus. Listen to this. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Luke 6 verse 24. But see, there is a difference in the motivation between what, why Jesus knocks the rich guy and why we might knock the rich guy. Because... We knock rich men because when we hear about Malcolm Turnbull's $50 million house on the Sydney Harbour, we get jealous and we wish that could have been us. So that's why we knock him down the tall poppy. But Jesus criticises the rich because he sees wealth as a dangerous idol that leads to selfishness, sin, idolatry, injustice. Jesus says the rich find their security in wealth. They store it up, they build bigger barns and bigger barns to store it all for their future so that they don't have to worry about things. When the rich have parties, says Jesus, they just invite their rich friends, they don't worry about the poor. So we should be wary of this rich man. Secondly, we have a rich, uh, the manager who works for the rich man, who's the other character. Now in the Roman context, this would have been either a slave or it could have been a freed man who worked closely with the rich master. And he was like an administrator or manager. He had full control over the money. He could, he could set up deals and, and work, out, work out arrangements. And uh, he was highly trusted. And this was a sought-after job. People liked this kind of job and wanted to try and get that in the ancient world. So the rich man and the manager. So when the rich master ticks off the manager for wasting his possessions, it says in verse 1 and ask him to give an account of what he's been doing, his job is suddenly on the line. That's how the parable begins. His social status is under threat. All he could do for alternative work, if he was to get the sack, he says, 
is manual labour or beg. Verse 3, he says, the manager, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. He would have been degraded to the status of unclean if he had lost his job. But also he would have lost his accommodation. He would have become homeless because he would have lived with his manager, with his rich boss. That's how it worked. So this is why in verse 4 he's concerned about being welcomed into other people's houses. He's, he's trying to think about his future now. What did he do wrong? He mismanaged his master's possessions. Possessions that were not his, but had been placed in his care by his master. His master had trusted him, and he'd been irresponsible and lost a lot of money. So there's a crisis in this parable. Verse 3, he says, what shall I do now? What am I going to do? And it's amazing how when our job is on the line or when a lot of money is on the line, we become extremely clear thinking and focused often. We work out how we can get out of this situation. And this is what happens to the manager. Verse 4 to 7. Look at verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He starts to arrange for the future. And his first strategy is to lower or reduce the debts owed by um, the debtors to his boss. He goes to the other people who had owed a debt to his master. He reduces it and he says... We hear about two examples in Jesus' parable. One person who has 900 gallons of oil and the other one has 1,000 bushels of wheat. Significant amounts of money here we're talking about. So the manager says to the first one, let's reduce your debt down to 450 gallons of oil. And to the other, he says, let's, let's reduce it from 1,000 down to 800 uh, bushels of wheat. By reducing their loan arrangements, he's doing a generous act. And he's doing them a favour and it's, it's, it's technically still the rich man's possessions, but until he gets the complete sack, uh, the manager still has control over it. These, these deals are binding. And it's interesting that what's happening here is that the manager is becoming a kind of a benefactor to these the other people by giving them, cutting them a deal. He's doing them a favour and they're, they're going to owe him something. He can ex expect them to reciprocate by extending him the hospitality of their homes later on. So the manager, who once found himself in the bad situation with his boss, has now got himself into a good situation in the last few days of employment when he was to make an accounting of his management. Instead, he's making arrangements for his future. So at the end of the parable, verse 8 and 9, once a rich master works out what his manager's been doing, he's impressed and he commends the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, it says in verse 8. It's in the film, The Big Short, you know, the, the bosses of Christian Bale's character, they think he's a complete lunatic, um, betting the farm on, on, the, on, on the housing bubble crash. Uh, but a few years later, when they get a 489% return, they think he's a genius. Very shrewd, they say. Well, they don't use that word, but it's like that. What makes this parable a bit confusing, though, is that on the one hand, the master commends the manager and says, you're shrewd. On the other hand, Jesus, the narrator, calls him dishonest. Is he shrewd or is he dishonest? Well, in verse 8b, the second half of verse 8, 
Jesus then changes modes and starts commenting on the parable. It's good when Jesus comments on the parable. It gives us more clues. More clues. And Jesus says, <clears throat> For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The people of this world, or the children of this world, it says in some translations, understand how the world works and use it to their benefit. But the people of light, God's children, they do not understand the ways of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's contrasting two worlds here. He's talking about the people of this world and the people of the light, or you could think of them as the people of the next world, the world to come. The people of this world, the people of the world to come. This is the key we need to unlock the parable. If you're a disciple, you're a people of light. You belong to the kingdom of God. You will spend eternity with God. If you are not his disciple, then you are still in darkness. You are not a child, you are, you're a child of this world. This world which runs on temporary stuff like money. God's world, his kingdom, is marked by righteousness and justice and beauty and truth and love and selflessness. But this world is marked by sin, injustice, selfishness and falsehood. But while Jesus' disciples, the people of light, belong to the next world, yet they live in this world. So this is how we've got to think about this. We, if we, you're a Christian, you are surrounded by the stuff of this world, but you should behave in conformity with the principles of the next world. This is the key to understanding this parable. What is Jesus saying? He's saying to his disciples, if you really understood God's ways, the ways of eternity, the ways of the gospel, the ways of me, Jesus, then you would use money, or as Jesus describes it, worldly wealth, because it belongs to this world and not in heaven. You do this to gain friends for yourself. I'm doing that on purpose, I'm inverted commas. You would use it generously for other people so that you are investing in eternal riches. You will go into eternity after you die and you will see all the fruits of the ways you've used this worldly wealth in a godly way. Let me explain what Jesus is talking about when he says make friends or gain friends for yourself because this is a bit weird, isn't it? In the Greco-Roman world, <clears throat> there was a, a concept where friendship and money went together. So everyone was in some kind of a financial relationship. Um, you... you you had superior friends and they were friends with more money who had, who had some kind of arrangement with you if you were, had less money. You had equal friends where you were, had the same amount of money and property and possessions and you had lower friends, people who had less than you that maybe you'd um, had an arrangement with. And um, everyone knew their place in this kind of hierarchy of upper, middle and lower. And um, that's just how it worked. And... They used the word friends because it, it, it sounded better to describe a person of lower financial status who you had some kind of a deal with as a friend rather than a, a client or a debtor. And that sounds strange, but it's not that strange. Like in our world, still today in Melbourne in 2016, I 
I mean, we still have an underlying hierarchy based around finances and possessions and property, which is unsaid, but, it, you know, it runs deep in the culture. But in Greco-Roman society, greater and lesser friends were, were involved in relationships of patronage. So this idea of using money to make friends refers to the social reality of Jesus' day, the exchange of money between people to build friends. Um, it, it kind of maintained, it solidified various forms of friendships. So in verses 4 to 7 of the parable, the manager uses his rich master's wealth to gain these friendship relationships based around money and the exchange of money. And they would then pay him back with hospitality and that's the way the culture worked. Okay, I've explained the, what Jesus is talking about gaining friends. But let's start drawing boundaries around this parable now because we need to or else we start having weird ideas. What is Jesus saying? What is he not saying? Yes, Jesus is saying to his disciples, use your money to help people to make friends, to do good works, build new relationships with your money, bless people with your money, make an impact on the world in a godly way with your money. You might do it by giving to those in need. You might do it by cancelling debt. You might do it by serving the body of Christ. But Jesus had already taught them something else. He taught them to give and not expect anything back from these friends. The manager expected hospitality, but that's what a, children, a person of this world, a child of this world or a person of this world would expect. They would expect something in return. But Jesus says not to expect anything back. That's what a ch a people of the light should not expect anything back. Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. There, notice he's saying, make friends with your enemies using your money. Be a blessing. Because money will vanish, but eternal treasure will have been secured. Luke 14, 14. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So giving should be done freely, with no strings attached, and without expectation of return. And this is what those who teach the prosperity doctrine get fundamentally wrong. They overlook what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Luke. They teach, in fact, the complete opposite, that you are to expect financial reward from being generous. That's why it's a false gospel. Something cool to consider <clears throat> about what Jesus is saying about giving your money, being a blessing and making friends is that remember in the Greco-Roman world I said there's greater, equal and lesser friends. Well, because Jesus also says we're to expect no return, this is not to benefit you, this is to benefit the other person. When a Christian who's got money Think about yourself. If you've got money and you give to a, a poor person, there is no longer any status. It's, they're not a lesser friend in God's kingdom because the money has no eternal consequence. Um, but the use of the money has eternal consequence. You, you're actually on the same level all of a sudden. The mammon, to use a Bible word, has no eternal value, but... The use of the mammon, which is actually 
gods in, in, in any way has eternal consequences. And I, I'm very much aware of that as a minister. Over the last 16 years, it's interesting being part of a church community and <clears throat> serving on staff in a church, being aware of this dynamic that um, as a body of Christ, as the church, we all serve together to make the church run. And during the week, most of you go off and do your own employment and get paid doing other things that are not directly related to church, most of you, church work. But then you sacrifice some of your earnings to pay me and the other staff at church so that we can devote all of our time, or most, a lot more of our time, to serving the church. And this is a good system. This is the way it's been since New Testament times. You lose some of your capacity to save or to pay off your mortgage quicker or to go on holidays or to buy cool stuff because if you're a child of the light or people of the light, you know it's just worldly wealth anyway, so it doesn't matter. It's what you do with it that matters. And just so you know, Joe and I, we, we also give a percentage of our earnings back into church work and also to mission and ministry outside of Mary Creek. And it's just all the money around the body of Christ. It slushes around and, and gets used in different ways for God's glory. In God's kingdom, if we use our worldly wealth in a godly way, it swirls around and around to the benefit of all. And this is a good system. And if you still haven't yet given um, or so, signed up to giving regularly at Mary Creek, let me encourage you to get your booklet out Turn to the back page and you'll see Giving at Mary Creek and you can do it with your phone app today before the service is even finished because you can do it all now with your, your phone. It's great. You can set up regular payments, follow the instructions on the back of the booklet, emailing the treasurer. Why do it? Because a minister says so. No. Jesus explains in ten, verse 10 to 14. We've had a parable. We've had Jesus' commentary. Now we've got Jesus' general comments. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Look at the contrasting ideas here. Being trustworthy or faithful, other translations say, with money can be seen in the way you use your money generously and for God's eternal purposes. If you let your financial decisions be driven by the economics of the kingdom of God, then you will be acting in a way that is trustworthy, to use Jesus' words, before God. But dishonesty, or being untrustworthy, is related to practice, practices that reflect a commitment to this present age, this world. You're actually acting like a person of this world, not a person of the next world. And I'm conscious with kids, actually, um, that I need to encourage my kids to take up this Kingdom of God economics. I'm, a, I'm still very much a dad with P plates on, L plates on even. And so I, I don't get this perfect. And I, I'm very conscious of the fact that they're surrounded by so much stuff and toys and sometimes have this really bizarre perspective that you can just get stuff, um, whatever stuff you want. And they learn quickly what is theirs and what they possess. I've heard Ezra say, my toy, my toy, my toy, you know. And it's like, oh, he's already becoming a person of this world. Um, Leo's already got an awareness of whose house is bigger and whose car is faster and cooler. 
But I've got this idea that maybe, I, don't, I haven't implemented it, and so I'm telling you, you can ask me how I go with this. But I've, I've thought every six months or so, we could get the kids to choose a selection of their toys to give away, to give to another kid or to give to kids in need, to start to instill in them that kingdom of God economics from an early age because it gets ingrained quickly. We don't want them to turn into Christian kids who are, have a sense of entitlement. Ugh. See, you can't actually be neutral with money. That's what Jesus is saying. Money is not inherently evil, but what we do with it, what it causes us to do, is evil. Jesus says, contrastingly, either you're faithful or you're unfaithful. You're dishonest or you're honest. And with religious people, we can look all holy on the outside, but what we do with our money reveals what's on the inside. Jesus says it's like we're a, you know, a coffee cup that's all shiny on the outside, but when you look inside, it's filled with muck. The greed that we have. Luke 11, 39. Perhaps this is you. Perhaps you come to church and you, you do all the things, you go through the motions and you look like a great Christian, you sing the songs, but on the inside, money is still a huge idol for you. Perhaps you're just swept up in the worldly financial system. You earn, you save, you spend, you invest, you pay bills, you do cool stuff. And on and on it goes. But for what? It's all going to fade away. <laughs> to me, there's nothing more inspiring than a generous Christian. Um, I remember once talking to a friend who worked for Ridley College in the 90s, and his job was the fundraiser. And he said, by far the most generous givers to Ridley College were old retired missionaries. Because... They had their eyes fixed on eternity. Their economics was shaped by the next world. They knew what worldly wealth was and they saw it for what it is. Their economics were kingdom-based. How we use our worldly wealth in a trustworthy or dishonest way will reveal where our commitment lies, to this world or to the next world. And this is why Jesus says in verse 13, it's like you're going to have two masters and you can't have two masters. You can't be neutral with money. Either it is your master or God is your master. You can't serve them both because one leads to dishonesty if, it, if it's your idol. And the other one leads to trustworthiness. One is just, the other is unjust. One is temporal, the other one is eternal. Their motivations are polar opposites. Jesus says either you'll hate the one and you'll love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. So let me finish. I, I think it's kind of ironic, thinking about the film The Big Short and what those guys were doing around 2005 and 6 and 7 and 8. In a way, being a Christian, giving your life over to Jesus, is the ultimate heavenly big short. What I mean is, it's the ultimate bet against the market. Because you're saying you believe that worldly money will fail you. And that you're going to have a bet against it by going with Jesus. Instead of getting money in return though, with Jesus you get salvation and eternity in return. You are saying, I trust in God's kingdom economics, I trust in Jesus, trust in what he says, 
that I'm going to invest my money, my heart, everything that I have, my life in a new way, in a way that doesn't look like the ways of this world. I'm going to give my whole life and possessions over to Jesus and use it for kingdom purposes. Let's pray that we can do that. Lord God, thank you so much uh, for this parable and uh, the way you have twists and turns and you surprise us with some cool imagery. And we pray that we can live this out, pray for ourselves that we can have kingdom economics, that we can see money for what it really is, um, that we can use it for the benefits of your kingdom, that we can serve the poor, we can cancel debts, we can be generous in giving our money away. And we pray for any of us here who really struggle with, with the idolatry of wealth, and that's many of us, um, many of us who call ourselves Christians, we pray that you can help us to confess that, to hand that over to you, to smash that idol, and to live in a new way as people of the light. Amen.